You're listening to Sunday Worship at Weddington Methodist Church. Find more ways to worship, fellowship, serve, study, and be supported at WeddingtonChurch.org. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 4. Today we'll conclude our series. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this amazing letter that Paul has written. And today we turn to Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, where Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the Word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ, for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy Word and for this privilege now to study it together. And God, as I stand before these, your people, this is indeed your church. So I pray that this will be your message and not my own, through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's interesting how often we talk about prayer. When something happens to somebody we love, we want to make sure they're on the prayer list. I've put your name on the prayer list. Or if something's happening to us, we, we want to know, I want to be on the prayer list. Put me on your prayer list. Or... Would you keep me in your prayers tomorrow at four? I have this happening in my life. And we want to know that there are other people around us who will be praying for us. Keep them in your prayers. Something we often share when we're sharing about people that we love, neighbors that we may have, friends that are going through things. Keep them in your prayers. I often get tickled sometimes at churches when we have the prayer time because at times I often wonder if prayer time is a little opportunity for us to gossip a little bit. Well, I heard this is what's happening and da-da-da-da-da. Keep them in your prayers. Because as you know, in the South, we're not gossiping if at the end of it we will say, keep them in your prayers or bless their hearts. But if we take it seriously, like we really do, if we take it seriously and think about what's going on, intercessory prayer makes a huge difference. And Paul, Paul knows the difference that prayer makes. And as he's concluding this letter to this amazing church, he asks them to devote themselves to prayer. But then he goes, I want you to pray for us as well. Now, Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and as I've shared with you over the last few weeks, this is not a church that Paul started. He was not their founding pastor. Actually, Paul had never been to this church, but he knew about them. Their pastor, Epaphras, had been sharing with Paul how much he loved his church. He was sharing with them, they are so committed to the faith. They love Jesus with all their heart. They're growing deeper every day in their discipleship. The amazing thing is they truly love one another. They love helping out those who are in need. They are in ministry. They are in mission 
on behalf of Jesus Christ. Paul loved this church from what he had heard. And so even though Paul is in prison, he is writing to this church a word of encouragement. And we've studied everything that he has shared up to this point. But now as he's wrapping up the letter, it's interesting to hear how Paul bookends this letter. At the beginning of it, he will say, I'm praying for you. And at the end of it, he says, and I want you to pray for me. Take a look at this letter as you study it and realize it is bookend and bathed in prayer. For example, Colossians chapter 1, as Paul is doing the introduction, he says, And our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And if you skip on down then to verse 9 in chapter 1, he continues and says, For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, as you bear fruit in every good work, and as you grow in the knowledge of God. It's powerful to hear someone go, I have been praying for you, and here's why. But at the end of the letter, the scripture that we read, Paul now turns it. As he's concluding, sharing with them, here's what I've heard about your faith. He shares with them, here's the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, his Christology. He shared with them about Christian living and the Christian ethic. And now as he wraps it up, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. But then listen to what Paul this is a senior pastor. This is a tenured pastor. This is one who's gone through so much in life. And he, and he looks at this church and he says, at the same time, pray for us as well. I, I love that. Hear, hear Paul saying those words. At the same time, pray for us as well. That God will open the door to us, a door for us, for the Word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ, for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Now, you know what's interesting about that to me is Paul, Paul is actually in prison. He is in chains. He, he has been through so much suffering on behalf of the gospel. But did you notice Paul doesn't say... I want you to pray for us and get us out of prison. We've been in prison unfairly because all we were doing was proclaiming Jesus. So we want you to pray and pray for those leaders and pray for our jailers and pray for all these people because we've been wronged and we've been wronged and we've been wronged and we should be released. Pray that God will open the doors. That is not what he's praying. It's what I'd be praying. The temptation would really be for me to be praying, pray that I can get out of here so that I can do these things. 
But Paul doesn't pray for himself. He doesn't ask them, pray for me so I can get through this. What he says is, I want you to pray that God will open to us a door for the Word. That we may declare this mystery of Christ, this gospel of Christ, what God is doing, which is the reason I'm in prison. But I love his sincerity and his heart for the gospel because his prayer is, and what he's asking them to pray for, is so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. I just, I just want to proclaim the gospel in a way that changes lives. I want to proclaim it clearly. So, so pray for me that God will provide a way that I can proclaim this gospel, this mystery of Jesus Christ, in a way that will change lives. You, you just have to love Paul's heart here. And one of the things that I think is so great and so cool, actually, about the Scripture is the church at Colossae, it's a new church. I mean, the whole faith is new to some degree, but this is a new church with young Christians, baby Christians, Christians that are still growing in the faith, still maturing in their faith. And here Paul is, this seasoned preacher, this seasoned teacher, this evangelist who's traveled the world, this evangelist who's been highly revered, and this evangelist who's been repeatedly beaten or thrown in prison, who's gone through so much for the gospel, and here this very seasoned preacher is looking to a young church going, can you pray for me so that I can be effective, I can do a good job, I can, I can proclaim the gospel? I, I think it is so powerful that Paul knows this whole church thing this whole sharing of the gospel, it's so much bigger than us. This is a God thing. It is God-sized, and it's going to take some God intervention to be able to do it well. So church, will you pray for me? Paul really believed that prayer would make a difference. And the beautiful thing is, this is somebody writing to a church that he's never met, to people that he doesn't know personally, but he's sharing this intimately. Now, many of you know I love, again, the readings of N.T. Wright. And in his commentary on Colossians, he says this. He said, to ask the Colossian church to pray for him is to bind them to him with ties of mutual obligation. They've never seen him face to face. But once you've prayed for someone, I want you to really catch what he says here. But once you've prayed for someone, and once you realize that they are praying for you as well, a bond grows up, which creates a relationship of love and trust ahead of any personal contact. When you've prayed for somebody, and when you know that they are praying for you, that creates an amazing Bond. Paul believes in the presence and the power of prayer. And then he shares with them, and not only that, your own pastor, Epaphras, is praying for you as well. Look at verse 12 of Colossians 4 when he says, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He is 
always wrestling in His prayers on your behalf. Wow. So that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills. I mean, can you imagine what that must feel like to know that there is someone who is wrestling with God in their prayers on your behalf. Paul believes this makes a difference. And that's why he's now asking, will you wrestle with God in your prayers on my behalf? Paul thought prayer was absolutely vital. When he writes the letter to the church at Thessalonica in Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Don't stop. Keep on praying. And then I love when he writes to his apprentice, Timothy. And when you read Paul's letters to Timothy, remember that this is a senior seasoned pastor writing to his young apprentice. And he says to him in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, he goes, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone for kings and for all who are in high places, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. One of my favorite writers of spiritual disciplines to help keep me focused, I read periodically his book, Celebration of Discipline, is the writer and the preacher Richard Foster. He also has another book on prayer. If you're interested in learning more about prayer, going a little bit deeper, it's called Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. So Celebration of Discipline takes you through the spiritual disciplines, which includes prayer, but then the book Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, is all about prayer itself and the power of prayer and the different ways that we can pray. And one of the things that he shares, though, in Celebration of Discipline is, he said, of, of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. When we pray, that means that we are in constant conversation. We are in a constant relationship with God. Prayer is a powerful thing because it is that actual conduit. We are in conversation, communication, relationship with God. But then he talks about those in the Bible who pray and the impact it makes. And he said again, as he goes on, the Bible Prayers, the people who pray, the prayers prayed as if their prayers could and would make an objective difference. The people who prayed in the Bible, the Bible prayers prayed as if their prayers could and would make an objective difference. Sometimes I catch myself and I wonder, how many times when I pray, do I really pray with the confidence that this prayer is going to make an objective difference? It's one of the reasons many of you have heard me share before that if I get a diagnosis or something that's challenging to deal with, 
I am going to the children's department. I'm going to the children's ministry because the children are like the Bible prayers that Foster's talking about. They are the ones who actually believe that this prayer will make an objective difference. Now, there are plenty of places in the Bible where you can see the difference that prayer makes. One of my favorites, for example, is in Exodus chapter 32. You might remember the story. You know, you have Moses leading the children of Israel. You've already had the Ten Commandments in, in Exodus 20. But, but Moses has gone up on the mountain. He's been up there for a while. And the problem when he's up there for a while is the people below start getting restless. They start wondering what's going on. Moses sure have been up there for a while. Yeah, he has been. Well, do you think he's okay? Well, I don't know. Hopefully he's okay. I thought he'd have been back by now. Yeah, I thought he'd have been back by now too. And the next thing you know, they form a committee, which is why we believe that, that or some of us believe, that the early Hebrew people must have been the foundations or beginning of the Methodist church because the first thing they did was form a committee, and that is what we are good at. They form a committee... What do you think we should do? I don't know. What do you think we should do? And finally, they come up with this idea. Let's collect all the jewelry around. We'll melt it down. We'll make up a God and we'll begin to worship that God. And they create and form a calf. You remember the story. And all of a sudden, God hears this commotion as the people are now dancing and worshiping another God. And that made, if you look back, that's one of the key commandments. You shall have no other gods. And God is pretty furious. As a matter of fact, if you look at Exodus 32, verse 10, God says to Moses, Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you, I'll make a great nation. I mean, I picture here, God is saying... Get out of the way. And he is rolling up the sleeves. He is so angry about what's happening there. But notice what happens in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot now against these people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind. And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I promise I'll give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And one of my favorite verses, verse 14, And the Lord changed His mind changed his mind about the disaster he planned to bring on his people. See, intercessory prayer, it works. When we pray for others, it makes a difference. Another scripture was in Mark chapter 2. You may remember the story. Jesus is in Capernaum. He has been healing people. It's early in his ministry, but the word came that Jesus was in a house. There's some question. Was it Jesus' house that he moved to the Galilee area? Could have been Peter's house because if you just look back at chapter 1 verse 29, that's where Jesus had been earlier and obviously stayed the night there. But there's so many people around and 
These four people have a friend who's a paralytic. Remember the story? They tried to bring this person to Jesus so that Jesus could heal them, but there were so many people, they couldn't get in the door. They tried this door, tried that door. Excuse me, pardon me. It wasn't working. They couldn't get in. They had so much faith, though, that Jesus could make a difference for their friend that they actually climbed up on the roof. And remember how they started peeling back the roof because you had the cross beams there and then you had thatch and mud that held it together. And, and so they began to dig into it. And you know that crumbs were dropping down. And I can just picture if it was Peter's house, Peter going, what in the world is happening? And he looks up and he sees a hole in his roof and going, what is going on? <laughs> but he can't really say what he's thinking because Jesus is in his house and he's watching his roof get pulled back going, I cannot believe what these people are doing doing until he sees they're actually lowering a paralytic down. You can just picture the ropes and they're lowering their friend down to Jesus. Now that takes commitment. Sorry, you know, we tried. We tried to get you to Jesus. It was so full. No, not these friends. They go all out. They climb up on the roof, peel it back, lower their friend down by ropes so they can be in front of Jesus. And do you did you catch what happens in that scripture? In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. He heals him. I want you to think about that. No wonder Paul was going, will you pray for me? Because when you have friends and others who will, who will work so hard to make sure to get you before Jesus, to get you before the throne of God, the Scripture says when Jesus saw their faith, He healed their friend. See, prayer and that bringing people to God, it actually does make a huge difference. It's one of the reasons, too, then, in Luke chapter 22, that Jesus will say to Peter, I mean, just picture this. Jesus walked up to Peter. I, I imagine he put his arm around his shoulder and he goes, Simon, Simon. You know, when somebody calls your name twice, it's typically not good. Terry, Terry. You're, you're not waiting for good news, typically. Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But listen to what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail and you, and once you've turned back, will strengthen your brothers. It's not the only time Jesus prays. We see it again in, in John 17 when Jesus is praying right before He's crucified. He's there in the garden and He prays for the disciples. He prays for all. But then He prays for us because He says in John 17 verse 20, And I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in Me through their word. That's, that's us. And Paul, the one, the one who asked the church to pray for him, in Romans 8 verse 34 says, It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. He still intercedes for us today. Paul saw the value. I'm praying for you. And now I invite you to pray for me. 
Pray for me that I can be the pastor that I'm called to be, that we can proclaim the Word of God. Now we say things a lot of times like, keep me in your prayers, keep them in your prayers. It can be a southern expression, or it can be a powerful bond that ties us together. Can you imagine if when somebody says, keep me in your prayers, keep them in your prayers, we actually did? Imagine what God can do. And imagine if we prayed for each other. So I will commit that I I will pray for you. I pray for you. I pray for this church. I pray that, that God will lead us to be the church that God's calling us to be. I pray that God will give me the wisdom and guide me as I seek to to be the pastor of the church and lead faithfully. I will pray for you that God will bless you and and that God will help you to grow in your discipleship and, and grow in your ministry and mission. And then I invite you to pray for me. As Paul said, that that I can that I can present the word of God clearly, that, that it'll make a difference. And lives can be changed. Paul bookend this letter with prayer. Praying for you, now you pray for me. Let's bookend this church with prayer. I'm praying for you. You pray for me. And when God then gets fully involved because of the prayer and the bond that we all have together, imagine what He will do. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well, that God will open to us a a door for the Word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Keep us in your prayers. Amen.